For the next few weeks, we're going to study out of the Old Testament, a very small book. It's only three chapters long, called Habakkuk. Difficult to pronounce and actually difficult to read. If you're going to find it, it's also difficult. So everything about it is a little bit hard. To find it, basically it's in the middle of your Bibles because it's towards the end of the Old Testament before you get to the New Testament. It's only three chapters. The easiest thing might be to turn to your table of contents and get the page number. But if you'll find Habakkuk, if you'll join me there, we're going we're gonna to read it and we're going to study it over the next couple of weeks. And Habakkuk is, as a book, as a prophecy, a little bit like season one, episode one of The Chosen. How many of you all have seen The Chosen? Have you all got a chance to see it yet? Good. If you haven't, you ought to watch it. Yes, there is some speculation and license on the background of the characters, but they do a great job of bringing it out and making you think about what it would have been really like to be a disciple of Jesus and to follow the life of Jesus. And episode one is a little tough, so I'm going to tell you if you're starting it, Episode one, season one, we're in season two now, is a little hard. Our students are watching it on Thursday. We're having lunch together, and we were watching episode one Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon at lunch, and, and I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm just going, and I remembered, and I've already told you this before, but I remembered as we watched it the first time. We finished, and um, there were tears, tears, tears of sorrow, tears of joy, thinking about how God had changed our lives and how Jesus had interrupted. And then my, my wife looked at me and she said, man, James, I was thinking if Jesus doesn't show up soon, we got to turn this off. <laughs> and that's kind of become for us in 2020 and 2021, that's kind of become for us a family statement, uh, particularly with Carrie and I, if Jesus doesn't show up. Well, you're going to feel that way in the book of Habakkuk because Habakkuk is candidly, authentically, absolutely honest with God. You feel his anger. You feel his confusion. You feel his disillusionment. You feel his disappointment. And it feels almost blasphemous. It feels difficult to say, I am disappointed in God. But sometimes, occasionally, circumstances can be so overwhelming that we do feel disappointed. Like somehow God could have, or more likely our thought processes are, not that he could have, but that he should have done something differently. It is not uncommon for us to feel this way inside, while it may be uncommon, particularly in church circles, to admit that at times the historical actions of God have been hard to comprehend. And a lot of times when it's our story, when it's our history. So we dive into chapter 1 where Habakkuk will give his first complaint, and it is a complaint Habakkuk is complaining about his geopolitical circumstances in Judah. This is taking place about 605 B.C., so we're transitioning from the 7th century into the 6th century B.C. Judah had had an amazing period of prosperity. King Josiah had come in. His reforms had made Judah the most spiritual Israel had ever been. There probably is, according to the book of 2 Kings, no greater king than Josiah. And Habakkuk has seen that. But Josiah dies, 
He dies in battle. His son takes over. And as you see, in most cases of nepotism, things start to unravel and go downhill. Judah has now sinned. They have now rebelled against God. They are now practicing false worship. They are now unjust as a nation. And they lose their status. They have been made a vassal of Egypt. Egypt came in, conquered Judah, took over, placed a, a no, of no importance king into place just to kind of hold that placeholder so that no decisions would be made, no actions would be taken, nothing would happen, and Egypt could control them. But now the Babylonians, the Assyrians, have swept in from the north, and in Carchemish, that city to the north of Judah, to the north of Jerusalem, They've now taken over and they have conquered the Egyptians and chased them all the way back to Egypt, now leaving Judah without any kind of protection, without any kind of military force. And it doesn't take a scholar to look at the news and pull up their feed that morning and realize Judah's next. Babylon is coming. And the Babylonians are notorious in their evil. And that's what frames Habakkuk's perspective. And so in verse 2, he starts his complaint. How long, Lord? And part of what makes Habakkuk hard, so let me just take, because I've already been struggling with this for a couple of months myself. Part of what makes this hard is Habakkuk will voice the things that oftentimes we keep internally, that we don't feel comfortable Maybe even some of the closest people in our lives are our parents or our brothers and sisters or our spouses. We don't even want to share with them this is how despondent, this is how despairing we are in this moment. Because you need to feel Habakkuk's pathos. How long, Lord? How long, Lord, must I call for your help and you do not listen or cry out about violence, and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective, and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk's geopolitical circumstances are just about as bad as they can possibly get. He's had these huge spiritual reforms, and now all of that is out of the picture, and violence reigns, injustice reigns. If you look at this complaint, wrong and wrongdoing is taking place everywhere. All he sees are oppression and destruction, strife and conflict, and the government itself, which had been dependent, the, the citizens had been dependent upon that government, because in Judah in particular, in Israel in particular, the government was tied to the authority of God. Israel was designed to be a theocracy. God was always to be the only authority for Israel. Israel wanted to be like everybody else, so they demanded a king. And God placed kings in place. And some of those kings did well. Most of those kings did terrible. And now they're in that frame of reference where everything has gone bad within his own country. And now there is the threat of an external nation who's even worse than Judah is, taking over. 
These ineffectual, paralyzed governments is a reference in Habakkuk's mind. If, if Israel is a theocracy and God is supposed to be in control, and Israel has gotten out of control and is doing all these evil things, and if Babylonia, if the Chaldeans are even more wicked, then surely, in Habakkuk's mind, surely God has lost control. And that's the heartbeat of this prophecy. How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen. This is a hard place to be in our prayer lives. The more difficult part about Habakkuk, and that's why you got to stick with me. Remember, chapter 3 is coming. You're welcome this afternoon to go home and read the book and read chapter 3 so you have something to look forward to because we're not going to get there today. God's answer is not what Habakkuk wants to hear. In verse 5, God begins to speak, and he's going to basically tell Habakkuk everything he already knows. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. And we're going to come back to verse 5 as, as there is some hope, there is some light in the midst of this very dark moment. But verse 6 begins the description of the Babylonians. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Framework this, process this in our minds. The very wicked Babylonians, God says, I am raising them up. I am putting them into authority. This is Habakkuk's problem. God, why are you doing these unjust things? Why, why are you approving unjust behavior? Why aren't you answering my prayers and responding the way I want you to respond? The descriptions of the Babylonians is extensive, historical, and, and right on target. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come down from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They, they laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. They sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. God has acknowledged these people are self-destructive. They are evil in their self-destruction. They are bitter. They are ruthless. They're impetuous. They're greedy. They're cruel. They're arrogant. They're self-sufficient. They're haughty. They're prideful. And they are blasphemous because they have determined that they don't need a superior God, that they are so powerful and so capable, they are their own God. Can you imagine... And some of us have been there. Like I said, we're sometimes hesitant to acknowledge it. Can you imagine being so upset with your circumstances and pouring out your heart in prayer? God, this is what's taking place. God, this is the diagnosis. God, this is, this is the circumstance. This is what's happened at work. This is what's taking place at school. God, this is what's going on with my kids. This is what's going on with my parents. This is what's going on and on and on. And on. You pour out your heart. And then God's answer is, look, I want you to watch and be utterly astounded. It's a whole lot worse than you think it is. So if it feels like a bit of a stretch, then I'm going to try to give you five simple little things that help. It is a bit of a stretch. Because we have to understand the sovereignty of God and make sense of that. 
So in verse 5 particular, before you get to the description of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, look at what God says. First he says, look and observe. I'm going to call this hope, turning our assumptions into awareness. God's call to Habakkuk is, listen, look, observe. Because on a spiritual realm, in a spiritual realm, things are not all, all the time as we think they are. In other words, sometimes God is doing something and we can't see it. Charles Finney was a great preacher in the middle of the 19th century, and he wrote a book on revival about the awakening and the revitalization of the church. And in the book, one of the most pressing moments is as he's describing how we could potentially revive the church, he says, understand this, things typically get worse before revival comes. You can pray and things are likely to get worse. You, you, can, you can repent and things are likely to get worse because God will let us hit rock bottom so that we're completely dependent upon him before he revives or he revitalizes us. I believe God's call to Habakkuk to look and to observe is a call of hope because it reminds us, turn our assumptions into awareness. If I pick up my news feed this morning and I see the things that are taking place, then my assumption is our nation, which we will celebrate the anniversary of our independence, has gone to some place. <laughs> well, don't you love it when the preacher starts into a statement he doesn't want to finish? <laughs> We're all human. Hope turns my assumption into an awareness. As bad as it may feel or seem in my circumstance, I can look, I can observe, I can wait because I have an awareness that God is moving in spite of what I see. I don't need to see everything God is doing for him to do it. And that's what takes place in verse 5 again. Be utterly astounded. And I'm putting this as confidence. You move from hope to confidence because confidence turns our despondency into dependence. The only way Habakkuk can process his complaint, process his disillusionment, process his despondency is to recognize it's not his responsibility and it's not his ability. That doesn't mean he shouldn't pray. That doesn't mean he shouldn't be. I mean, I, one of the things I love about Habakkuk is he is openly honest and candid with God. But he's willing to acknowledge his despondency, and God is able to take that despondency and turn it into a dependency. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. You get a diagnosis from a doctor, and you're sitting there in the examining room, or you're sitting in his office, and he says, this is what you've got, and this is what you're dealing with. And he says, here are the options. And he lists off three or four different options. These are the types of treatments he, we have available to us. And then he does the opposite. He walks back through that list and says, but this option's not available. This option can't be done. This option, you're, you, for whatever circumstance you have, this, this option isn't applicable. And you're frustrated and, and, and exhausted and, and worried and anxious, and you're being told there isn't anything that can be done. That's a backup situation. 
And if we live in that moment, we will become absolutely, fully, completely despondent. We have to take our despondency and transition it to dependence. And we have to acknowledge and say, look, God, this, this, there may not be options that are immediately available for me that I can see or I can understand, but I am trusting you. My awareness is going to push me past my assumptions, and I'm going to have hope that you are aware of what's going on. You know what's taking place, and you can bring about a solution, even if what I can see, what I can process doesn't have a solution for me. I'll never forget I mean, it's been almost 30 years now that I've been an insulin-dependent diabetic. And I, and I had sat in classes, and I had been a chaplain for hospitals. I had been a pastor that entire time. And basically, I, I should have known everything about the grief process. But when I had that first appointment, and, and that doctor looked at me and said, look, you're a diabetic. Your pancreas is atrophied. There is absolutely nothing you can do. I kicked into that mode, you know, kind of good Texas boy mode. No, that's not true. I'm a, I'm a Texan. <laughs> we can do a lot of, you know, this might be true if I was someplace else, but I'm in Texas. We've got a solution for everything. Then I'm sitting in class. I go to the hospital to take this introduction to diabetes class. And the nurse says, the first thing you have to overcome is the reality that this cannot be cured. It can only be controlled. And I'm absorbing this intellectually. And I'm saying, okay, okay. So I do this, 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 and I control it. And they'll figure it out. There's a cure. And she keeps saying, there's no cure, only control. Then we get into the grief section, and the chaplain, who was actually a friend of mine, comes in, and she starts teaching about the grief process. And she gets into the different stages of grief process, and she says, this is huge for diabetics. You get to a place where you are delusional, and you deny the reality and the fact that there is no cure. Okay, I'm not intellectually processing at this point. I'm kind of curled up in a fetal position, sobbing on the floor. What do you mean there's no cure? Somewhere between all the anger. And I had to walk out of that class and face the rest of my life with an acknowledgement. I may not be able to control this, but I can't let it make me despondent because I am dependent upon Jesus for everything. We can still have hope. We can still have confidence. We can still have trust. I love the phrase, for I am doing something, God says. I am doing something. I have to trust that. I may not be able to see it, but I have to trust that he's doing something. He says he's doing something. I need to take my confusion and transition it to my confession. It's okay to say to God because you can be honest. You can have this lamentation. Lamentations are throughout the whole scriptures. You find them in the book of Lamentations, not the easiest read either. You find it in the book of Psalms. You find it throughout Scripture. Jesus himself practices the prayer of lamentation when he's dying on the cross. Jesus looks up, and we try to dress it up and clean it up. Jesus looks up to heaven and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think it's tough because we feel like God's not listening. Imagining being God in the product of the personality of the Son of God, dying by execution for things you never did, and then God has to turn, God the Father turns his back on you because the wickedness and the evil and the sin you're about to take on as your responsibility, God the Father can't see. 
and Jesus Christ. If Jesus can cry out honestly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then it's okay for Habakkuk, and most importantly today, it's okay for us. But we can trust. God says he's doing something. I don't need to see that to validate it. I need to take my confusion and make it my confession. God, I believe you're doing something. Which is very close to faith. I'm doing something in your days. Have faith. God is capable of taking our worry and turning it into waiting. I quote it right after the baptisms when, we were, when I was praying from, from 1 Peter. Cast your cares on the Lord. We are not going to come up. I am not going to come up with a solution by fretting and worrying and being anxious. My trust that turns into my confession, I believe God's doing something, turns into confession. I believe God's doing something now. Habakkuk says, this is my problem. And God says, you know what? It is your problem. And what you don't realize is I'm actually doing something. I'm doing something right now in this moment that you can't see. So there's no need to worry. Wait. How many of us oftentimes memorize or even quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31? They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall wait. Wait? We don't want to wait. I need an answer today. I need need to apply this into my life today. But sometimes waiting is the answer. And so we have faith. We have hope, confidence, faith, trust, and then resolution. Uh, this, I like the phrase in verse 5 where he says that you will not believe when you hear about it. And I recognize I need to turn my anger into anticipation. I need, I, I need, to, I need to wait and look forward to something. It may not be something I know or I understand, but I, I need to wait and be able to trust And in that trust, I need to be able to resolve in my own heart, have that resolution, I expect God to do something. You know, it's been over 25 years. And yes, the nurse was right, the doctor was right, the chaplain was right. 25 years later, 30 years later, there is still no cure for diabetes. So every day, I take four to five shots every day of my life. And it can get pretty old pretty quick. For the first 25 years, I took finger pricks to test my blood seven to eight times a day. Yes, you already know it. If you hadn't figured it out, I'm a little OCD about this stuff. Because when you're in my business and you see what happens to diabetics that don't take care of themselves, it can can affect you. I'm I'm ready to go to heaven. I just don't want to go one piece at a time. Let's take all of me (laughs) at one time. So it's been a long 25 years. But you know, as recently as last month, I was put on new equipment. I was put on a new regimen, just released, just like in the last past year and a half, where now I do one finger prick a day because I have a continuous glucose monitor that tells me at any moment exactly what my blood glucose is every five minutes. I walked out of one of my best friend's funerals because I thought I was having a low and I panicked. And I've hated myself for that because I was with a group of pastors and in front of everybody, it was horribly embarrassing. I'll never have to do that again because I don't have to panic anymore because of the new equipment. All I have to do is take a look at my phone and say, okay, 
you're panicking, you're a little overly anxious. Sit down, be calm. Or I can look at it, and it can tell me, no, you got a good reason to be panicked. You need to find some sugar now. And we're approaching lunch, so it seems like a good place to bring the message to an end. All of, the, all of, the, all of that to say, anticipation, that faith that turns into our resolution, if we really believe God's working today, then I don't need to be angry about it. I can, I can wait and I can anticipate. If God's working today in my circumstances, whether I see them or not, that means there are good things ahead somehow. It's not a cure. It wasn't a cure for me. But control has been a whole lot easier the last three, four weeks, the last past month. Because God is doing something. And your situation is probably a whole lot worse than what I'm describing. And you're wondering, is God listening? Is he hearing? You have the same questions and the same doubts Habakkuk does. But listen to Habakkuk. Listen to the pain of his story as we progress towards the, the, the future of his story and the, and the rejoicing and the celebration of his story in chapter 3. And know God is doing something in our day.